Thank you. And please welcome, please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers uh, to today's program. Again, my name, thank you. Again, my name is Danny Asaf, President-elect of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we thank our viewing audience uh, for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encourage open and accessible, open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to our province, and to our country. Also, through our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and our social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage in leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining our conversation today. Before I formally introduce our speaker, I'd like to also take this opportunity if you will, to introduce some of our upcoming events. On November 6th, we're proud to host Dr. Edward Brown, founder and CEO of the Ontario Telemedicine Network, one of the largest and most active networks in the world. He will be here to discuss his vision for the future of Ontario's healthcare system and this necessity of a one patient, one team, one care plan strategy. And on November 26, we're equally honored to be hosting Mr. Michael Sabia, President and CEO of La Caisse de Dépôt du Placement du Québec. And for a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation in the modern world. We have joined via Twitter and Instagram. Your kids will tell you how to access all that if you're like me and you don't know. And by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. And I would also like to take this opportunity to express our thanks and gratitude to our great sponsors, Cisco and the TD Bank Group. Thank you both for your generous support. Again, without your participation and the support of our sponsors, none of this would be possible, and this 118-year history that we're proud of uh, would not have occurred. So thank you, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am honored to be here today as your host and to introduce, introduce today's guest speaker. A leader, an advocate, and champion for, Canadian, for Canada's Inuit. Ms. Simon recently completed her term as chair of the National Committee on Inuit Education. In this role, she traveled nationally and internationally to tackle what she describes as the social policy challenge of our generation, improving Inuit education. This, as we are all aware, is no easy task. Unfortunately, dropout rates are disturbingly high and jobless rates can be as much as 70%. There are many reasons for this, including the lingering effects of historical problems such as the residential schools. Others also point to the inadequacy of educational policies of the South being applied to the Arctic region. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada focused on addressing these issues. Ms. Simon, Ms. Simon has the distinction of being an honorary witness. This distinction recognizes her decades-long leadership on Canadian Inuit issues. From 2006 until 2012, for six years, she served as the president of the Inuit Tapirit Kanadami, the Inuit organ, the, na the National Inuit Organization. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. I pay him to clap at every event. Thank you very much. Checks in the mail. She was also president of the Makovic Corporation. Makovic is the land claim organization for the Inuit of, Na of Nunavut, uh, Ms. Ms. Simon's hometown. Why no applause this time? <laughs> That's a, she also served as Canada's ambassador for circumpolar affairs, as well as to the Kingdom of Denmark. Her leadership has been celebrated in a number of arenas, including being named an officer of the Order of Canada, and she has also been named to the National Order of Quebec. 
Before I relinquish this podium, I want to let our live audience know and everyone in the room that time permitted, Ms. Simon has graciously agreed to take questions after her speech. And on that note, Ms. Simon, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium is now yours. Good afternoon. Thank you for, for coming. It's always a pleasure to, to see everybody. Some old colleagues, friends, and your honor, a friend of mine. Um, and Danny, thank you for the very kind introduction. Um, I just want to take a moment to echo and add my own words to honor corporate Nathan Cirillo, who died standing guard on the tomb of the unknown soldier in Ottawa on Wednesday, and warrant officer Patrice Vincent in St. Jean last Sunday. Being here today, we honor them and we demonstrate by our presence the strength of our human spirit as Canadians. And when we sing the national anthem, let's sing it with them in mind and in support of our values as Canadians. I know that we are positive global citizens and we have good work to do ahead of us. I also want to thank Willa, who's a great friend of mine, Willa Black, who is here at the head table. Um, from Cisco. Willa and, I, Willa and I met years ago, oh well, a number of years ago, not too long. Uh, and uh, since then, Willa and Cisco have been the vision and energy behind a really terrific project called Connected North Telepresence that is introducing state-of-the-art technology to schools in Nunavut. And I heard from Willa today that, that uh, they are going to be uh, working with 10 schools in Nunavut, and they also have opened the, uh, the a telehealth facility for mental health in Iqaluit, which is absolutely amazing. I am so glad that you are doing that. And actually, And actually, as I look around the room, I, I do see a number of people I have worked with over the years in putting Inuit education at the forefront of social policy change in Canada. And I thank you for being here today, Clint Eastwood. Uh, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Why not, eh? <laughs> Clint Davis <laughs> from the TD Bank Group. <laughs> Uh, Corey McPhee from Valley Canada, and uh, Bruce Lawson from the Counseling Foundation. I don't know, are you here? Oh, there you are. <laughs> and there's others too, uh, but I do really want to begin by offering my appreciation for the support that has been given to us uh, for this work that we are doing on education. It's funda fundamentally crucial. I also want to begin by offering my appreciation and thanks to the Canadian Club for the invitation to speak at this uh, luncheon forum and, and to Cisco and TD Bank for, for sponsoring this event. I am uh, well aware of the many Canadian leaders and innovators and influencers who have stood at this podium to explain an important point of view about Canada. Today, I would like to bring an Inuit and Arctic perspective to your ongoing conversation about this great country of ours. My dear friend, late friend, Josie Kusugak, when speaking about how Inuit view themselves within Canada, used the words, first Canadians, Canadians first. And it is in the spirit of those words that I speak to you today. For those of you who have had an opportunity to visit or perhaps work in the Canadian Arctic, 
you will have had a glimpse into the remarkable place that I call home. So allow me to begin with some context. One of the fundamental aspects of Canada that Inuit under, understand intrinsically is the great expanse of our country. Our population of 55,000 are spread across four different jurisdictions and comprise of 53 communities. In the east, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, Inuit live in a region we call Nunatsiavut. Next door to Nunatsiavut, Inuit live in a region we call Nunavut in northern Quebec, which is where I come from. Across the top of Canada and into the high Arctic, Inuit live in communities throughout the new territory of Nunavut. And finally, in the far west, in the Northwest Territories, Inuit live in a region we call Inuvialuit Settlement Region, and it's, they call it Nunakput. In its entirety, Inuit refer to the four regions as Inuit Nunangat, Inuit homeland, and it comprises one-third of Canada's land. All of my working life has been dedicated to influencing Canadian public policy, and specifically the policies that impact the rights and well-being of Inuit. That journey has landed me across and at times within the negotiating tables of prime ministers and ministers and many, many lawyers. <laughs> My work has been to illustrate the ties that bind Inuit together as a people and as citizens of this great country. That is to say, equal before the law and with the right to a comparable level of services as other Canadians. For me, the best way to explain the context of the Arctic has been to describe a little of my own life story. My family and other Inuit lived in remote camps out on the land, making many of our own clothes from caribou and seal skins. We harvested the animals both for the skins and the food. My father, who was originally from southern Canada in near Winnipeg, managed the local Hudson Bay Company post. And from him, I had the good fortune to learn about the non-Inuit world, or what we referred to as the South. My father had a deep love and respect for the North, its natural beauty and the people, but he also recognized and valued what the South could offer his family. When I reached six years old of age, our family moved across Angava Bay to Kujuak, which used to be called Fort Chimo, as I was telling you earlier. It, was, it used to be a, a, a US military base. And we moved there so that we children could start federal day school up to grade six. And that's when our lives really began to change. Up until this point in our lives, we had been living out on the land, and my education was through observing actions of our parents and our elders. When we enrolled in the federal day school in Kujuak, the teaching methods were totally foreign to us, and it was all in an unfamiliar language called English. Just so you know, why didn't you speak English at home? My father was very fluent in Inuktitut, spoke five or six dialects, and my mother was unilingual. She didn't speak English, so we never spoke English at home. As we approached the school in the morning, and I remember this very vividly, we would stop talking in our language, Inuktitut, because if we were heard speaking Inuktitut, we would be punished for speaking our language. We weren't in residential school, but the policies applied within our community as well. Because my mother was Inuk and was married to my father, who was a non-Inuk, we were not eligible to go, to, to go away to residential school. So my father taught us high school through correspondence courses. But what this meant also was that uh, as a young person, I was witness to many families being split apart in my community as their children were boarded on a plane and sent away to residential school, some never to come home. Inuit, have, in, uh, Inuit of my generation 
have words that describe this period of our lives. And those words are ilira and kapia. Ilira and kapia describe the combination of fear, respect, and nervous apprehension that, that Inuit felt about the people and the Western institutions that arrived in the Arctic in the 1940s and 50s, the RCMP, the churches, and of course, the schools. To this day, these two words, ilira and kapia, still, still stir great emotion in many of us, for they speak of those early days in community life when Inuit families faced wrenching decisions because of policies made in Ottawa. That part of our history has been the focus of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And earlier this year, I had the great honor of attending the final event of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Edmonton. This was an extraordinary three days that I attended, which involved over 3,000 people. And it was the TRC's last event before this, they submit their report to Canadians next year, which is expected in June. And this will be on the experiences, the impacts, and the consequences of residential schools. The work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is profoundly important to Canada's national memory. Here at the Canadian Club, you have held conversations since 1897 with remarkable leaders and new newsmakers on what matters most. For, Abor uh, for Aboriginal Canadians, it matters what happened in those schools. The courageous testimony of individuals who spoke to the commissioners on their residential school experiences was shattering and horrifying and raises the question of how could this happen in Canada? For Inuit, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has given voice to the whispers and anguish and painful silence that was known to our families in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s when the survivors returned to our communities. To put this raw emotion into words is difficult, but perhaps the fullest ex explanation lies in these words. The residential school years shook our belief in ourselves. So the work you see Inuit involved with these days, setting up new governments, reviving our language, and celebrating our cultural heritage is at the root, is at its root about transformation. And by that I mean reclaiming our sense of identity and self-worth and restoring the leadership needed to take our communities forward. But I also believe there is another message that matters here, and it is this. It is through the schools that our relationship with education was so badly damaged. And so it must be through education that we reconcile with our past and move forward. Now, reconciliation will not be easy. In many ways, I think it will be even harder than the truth-telling of the past few years. But here's what I believe. Either we can be overwhelmed and immobilized by the enormity of the social problems we face, or we can use the Government of Canada's apology and the testimonies of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a catalyst for taking back control and owning our education system one decision and one policy at a time. And I think we are doing that. So my focus in the last six years has been two interrelated issues, education and mental health. The seeds for this work really took root in 2005 when I was involved in discussions around the Kelowna Accord. At that time, Canada came very close to negotiating a $5 billion agreement with Aboriginal leaders to improve the education 
employment and social conditions for Aboriginal peoples. Unfortunately, the Kelowna Accord did not survive a change in government, but the process did achieve this. It shone a light on the state of Aboriginal education in Canada. In communities across the Arctic, what we were seeing and continue to see is far too many dropouts and the too often related issues of alcohol and drug abuse and suicides. The stark reality is that 75% of our students, or and more in some communities, are not completing high school. This is not post-secondary education we're talking about. We're talking about high school. So even though the Kelowna Accord failed to materialize, the process itself galvanized opinion among Aboriginal leaders, including myself, that Aboriginal education and adequate mental health services needed to be an, a part of a national discussion. And here's the action that we took. In 2008, we held a summit on Inuit education that brought together government and Inuit leaders to talk about a new vision for Inuit education and commit leaders to developing that vision. And so in 2011, we released First Canadians, Canadians First, the National Strategy on Inuit Education. I was supposed to hold a copy up, but I don't have it. <laughs> you can find it on, on the website. You can get it from the office. It's not difficult to get. And it was the first time in our 80-year history with modern education that Inuit and governments across the four jurisdictions actually collaborated on a vision for education the Inuit. Of course, releasing a strategy and implementing a strategy are two entirely different mountains to climb. So for the past three years, as the present and, and past chairperson of the National Committee on Inuit Education, I have been working to bring life to the 10 recommendations in the national strategy. Implementing our national strategy is about catching up to the educational experience that is taken for granted elsewhere in Canada, such as creating, creating a curriculum that is relevant to our life experience, training our own teachers, and developing learning resources in our own language of Inuktitut, establishing a university in the Arctic, as other circumpolar nations have done, and establishing specialized mental health services for students who need to who need a hand up, and perhaps most important of all, re-engaging parents in the education of their children. So what has happened since we released the strategy? The first thing we did was to seek out partners to help us establish the organizational, organizational capacity to implement the strategy, and, and we found that partner in Valais. And I'd like to acknowledge Corey. Where is Corey? Oh, Corey, okay, there you are. Um, I'd like to acknowledge Corey, who is here uh, as uh, representing Valet, uh, for the support uh, that you gave. Valet's founding investments, or investment, along with other partners, which was the Royal Bank uh, of Canada's found, the Royal Bank of Canada Foundation, the Counseling Foundation of Canada, and regional Inuit organizations, allowed us to open the Amaoyak National Center for Inuit Education, which is a modest three-person office which is housed inside our national Inuit organization, the Inuit Tapirit Kanatami, or as we call it, ITK, in Ottawa. I was president for, of ITK for six years and started to work, started the work of the center while president. ITK's cur current president is Mr. Terry Audla, and he is the acting chair right now. The Amaoyak Center coordinates the implementation of the strategy and Peter Geeky, who is here, he's the director of the Amaoyak Center. Please stand so people can see you. <laughs> so with this capacity, we have been able to seek out additional private and public partners to implement the other recommendations 
if I've learned anything in my four decades of influencing public policy, I know I'm dating myself, it is that change rarely results in one bold stroke or one from one bold stroke. Rather, change occurs incrementally and leadership is about guiding others to see and reach for that next incremental goal. Leadership is also about a constant process of building and fostering relationships and through these relationships, putting ideas to work. Let me offer a couple of examples. I spoke earlier about the legacy of the residential schools period. When we began openly talking about the residential school experience, we began to realize that we, what we were seeing in our families and in our communities is what others call intergenerational trauma. In many of our communities, we have parents and grandparents who have very troubled memories of being in school and therefore they have conflicted feelings towards school for their own children and grandchildren. What is the consequence of these conflicted feelings and values towards education? We can see it manifest in low attendance rates. If a, if a child misses 40 days of school a year, and this is quite common in some of our communities, by the time the child reaches high school, they will have missed a combined total of two years of school. So for a grade nine student who has missed that many school days, it is really only a matter of time before they will drop out of school. Of the 10 recommendations in our national strategy, the one that garnered the most discussion during our research and consultation phase was the need to re-engage parents in school. That's why the first implementation priority of our national strategy is to implement a national parental engagement campaign aimed at getting our children to school every day, all day, well rested and ready to learn. And I am delighted that corporations such as CIBC, represented here by Matt Peterson, where's Matt Peterson, there you are, and Cisco, uh, have joined with us in funding the first phase of this important initiative with parents, along with the 2013 Arctic Inspiration Prize that we received last December. Other initiatives of the strategy have attracted the attention and support of other partners, some of, some of whom are here today as well. The Counseling Foundation of Canada, represented here by Bruce Lawson, has supported one of the key initiatives of the strategy on the Inuit language writing system. Thank you, Bruce. The TD Bank Group, represented here today by Clint Davis, <laughs> sponsored a lit literacy initiative in one of our communities in partnership with the Imawiak Center, the government of Nunavut and Frontier College. And increasingly, we are seeing, seeing provincial and territorial governments using the language of the national strategy in the new, in new education initiatives, particularly around interventions to improve attendance. Some governments can be slow in embracing transformative change, and we see this with the Government of Canada. The current emphasis of the Government of Canada in Inuit education is on investing in post-secondary training for resource development industry. In very specific circumstances, these investments are useful, but they won't graduate more students from grade 12. We have an education deficit in the Arctic. It seems to me that common sense, that with all the wealth Canada is deriving from resource extraction in the North, we should direct some of that wealth to, get, to getting more kids through grade 12 and beyond. The national strategy has focused on 10 very specific investments to close the education gap. As I, and as I travel this country and meet with different audiences, I am often asked this question. Why don't Inuit provide additional services they need with the money they received through land claims? And I am glad to get that question because it is important for Canadians to know that land claims are not intended 
to affect the rights of Inuit as Canadian citizens. Land claims are not intended to replace our entitlement to all the rights and be benefits of all other Canadian citizens. Our land claims do provide the tools and the means to increase our capacity to take on initiatives that add value to basic services. And increasingly, we are seeing land claims organizations partnering with other organizations or corporations on targeted initiatives to enhance basic services. But land claims are not intended to replace basic services that are the right of citizenship. Our Amaoyak National Center for Inuit Education in Ottawa has served a very, as a very effective portal for non-government organizations, such as some of you here, and corporations who want to add their expertise and resources to education initiatives in the North. But they do need help navigating the relationships. And frankly, one of the reasons that I continue to work with the Amaoyak Center um, and to accept important invitations like this one to speak at events and lunch forums across the country is to, is to get these messages, messages out. So I'm still uh, working with, uh, very closely with the Amaoyak Center as the senior advisor for, for the uh, education work. Because it is an opportunity, like I said, to say to Canadians that Inuit are entering a new era of education, and you can help. Our goal is to raise $1.2 million for our, two, for our initiatives over the next three years. This is about nation building, about changing the narrative from failure to success in Aboriginal education, one project, one partnership, and one relationship at a time. And I firmly believe there is a momentum in our country to change the narrative. Last month, at the invitation of the former Premier of the Northwest Territories, Stephen Kakwe, I agreed to become co-chair of a new alliance of distinguished Canadians committed to embracing a new partnership between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians to bring new energy and reconciliation to nation building. Canadians for a New Partnership has enlisted long, a long list of accomplished Canadians including former Prime Minister Paul Martin and Joe Clark, and former Auditor General Sheila Fraser, former Supreme Court Justice Frank Iacobucci, and former AFN Chief Ovid Mekerty, to name a few. The mission of, Canad of Canadians for a New Partnership is about achieving tangible results through building new partnerships between First Peoples and other Canadians. And if you visit the website for the Canadians for a, new, for a New Partnership, you will see the declaration that we signed. The declaration includes these words, with, which frankly is what our national strategy and the Amaoyak Centre is also about. It says, Canadians for a New Partnership is not here to bury the past, no matter how harmful it is or it was but to use it as the foundation upon which the new partnership is built. Inuit don't want to be issues periodically appearing on the, on the, on the front page of our newspapers for our, for our alarming social conditions. We want to be part of and contribute to a robust Canada. I believe that in every generation, there is an issue, above all others, that is a measure of how we did as a society. There is no guarantee that we will see or agree on what that measure is in the present. It might be something that we identify in hindsight. For the past 40 years, for example, that measure for Canada's Inuit was probably our determined effort and success at securing our land claims. But now we must shift our focus. Following the 2008 apology by the Prime Minister on residential schools, I believe the measure of how Inuit prosper in Canada will be measured in graduates. 
To make progress on more graduates, we have to close the gaps in our education system, and we have to ensure that our communities have basic mental health services to help those who need a hand up. And we need Canadians to under understand that this is really the national issue of our generation and a national challenge for our country. So thank you very much for listening to this long presentation. And if you have any questions, I, I will um, attempt to answer them. And uh, if any of you would like to talk to us after, um, myself and Stephen Hendry, who is the executive director of ITK. I forgot to introduce him. <laughs> and Peter will, will be available. And you, each table was supposed to have some pictures. I don't know if they were put out yet uh, of uh, what I was talking about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. And uh, on that note, I'd like to open up the floor for some questions. And I have just, there's a couple of rules. Just please identify yourself when you propose the question. And although I'm not Alex Trebek, nor am I Clint Eastwood, please put <laughs> it in the form of a question, please. Thank you very much. I'm Sherry Campbell, I'm with Frontier College. I know you talked about in the plan parent engagement and high school completion, but another important part was early childhood education. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's also one of the recommendations in the national strategy. And um, we've just started working with the public policy forum on, um, some, on a research uh, project to identify what the challenges are in early childhood education that exists today. And uh, it'll be a report coming out. But um, just from an Inuit perspective, one of the things that we have found is that uh, most of our centers are underfunded. They're, not every community has a, uh, has a daycare or early childhood education center. And um, the other problem that really I think exacerbates the problem is the fact that the daycare centers and the education system don't connect. So when a young child who has been in daycare has, you know, learning challenges, uh, that information is not necessarily passed on to the to the kindergarten um, classroom where that child is going to go, and that problem child becomes a problem child. You know, it, he becomes, um, he could become a bully or he, could, he or she could become intimidated by the whole process, uh, pick fights. I mean, there's lots of things that happen in the school and sometimes you find out that it's because the child is having problems learning and they don't know how to act, how to react to the situation. So they become the problem child at the school. So I think if there was more interconnectedness between the daycare system and early childhood uh, education with the schools in the north, even though there's no diagnostic services, we could at least catch some of these children that are having problems learning and to try and identify why they are having a problem learning. So it's a very important area. Uh, Andre Morso, the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. I'm wondering for uh, Canadians who live in the South and who have never been to the to the far North, are there any geographic considerations when it comes to education that maybe you could share with us? Maybe one example of how the geography of the land lends itself to being a challenge for education. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, we, we have different education systems. There's four different, like, distinct education systems depending on where you live. Like in Nunavut, it's the Nunavut government. In the Northwest Territories, it's the territorial government of Nuna, Nuna, Northwest Territories. Labrador, it's Newfoundland. And for us, we have our own school board, but it's still under Quebec. So we, we, we're living with all four different, almost complete different jurisdictions. And at the same time, you know, we're the same, we're one people, we have the same language, we live with the same culture, 
And our regions vary, but very similar in nature. Um, very isolated communities, except for maybe the major centers that we have, like Ikhaluit and Kujuak, um, maybe Inuvik. You know, those places are more robust in terms of services, but uh, isolation is a challenge. The cost of living is a challenge. So even though, let's say, our education system seems to be receiving a lot of money for education, we don't have money for curriculum development, per se. Like, some regions have more than others. And that's why it's, it's kind of all over the place, because we don't have a unified system. And that's what we're trying to create, is some kind of standardization across the Arctic so that our kids when they graduate from high school, will have the same level of, of graduation and will be able to enter post-secondary education, which most of them cannot right now, without taking upgrading. Wonderful, thank you. Maybe one last question. Hi, I'm Lena Ajmeri, the Director of Scientific and Program Development of the SNAP Program at the Child Development Institute. I just want to thank you for helping to us to shed more light and helping us to understand um, the issues that your children and families are experiencing in your communities. But I'm wondering if you can shed a little bit more light about the mental health piece. Because just like you said, you know, you're bringing it into schools and parents are guarded, and rightly so from the experiences they had. But how are they going to feel about mental health services given, yeah. you know, that they see this as their, their child being identified as having a problem? And I think yeah. we need so much more learning and so much more help at being invited into communities and how you, how you would assume to do that. How, do, how are we going to deal with it? I'm not sure how it's going to be addressed in the long term, but um, it's a definite, it's a big gap in our health service, and it's a, it's a big issue across the Arctic, mental health. Services are really non-existent. When we set up the health, when the government set up the health system across the Arctic, the nursing stations and you know, the small hospitals that we have, like in Kujuak, the bigger one in Ikhaluit. Um, nobody really put any thought into providing mental health services because our people didn't, probably didn't bring it up either because I'm not sure if, I may, I suppose there were mental health issues before colonization took place, but it didn't seem to be a big problem. Um, but when services were introduced, it was about the physical health because people had tuberculosis. There was a lot of health issues like epidemics, measles epidemic. Um, there was all kinds of major illnesses going on. Um, and people were wiped out due to these illnesses as well. Um, so mental health was never a big, it was never a topic. But as, as, as we see the progression of how health services were implemented, there's never been any real emphasis put on mental health services, and yet when you look at the health of our people, I mean, I've been tragically impacted by suicide in my family. Uh, a lot of, um, uh, probably every person in the North has been affected in some way. Um, we have social workers that are trained to be social workers, Inuit social workers, and because Suicide is such a horrendous um, uh, event for the, not just the family, but for the community. The social workers become the mental health workers as well, and they're not trained to do that kind of work, but they have to do it. So they kind of go from crisis to crisis, and they burn out themselves. So it's like a vicious circle. And the thing that I noticed, over the, especially over the last five years, because my father was in the hospital for a year in Kujuak and I was in the hospital all the time, I started to know what was, I started to see what was going on with youth and mental health. When a youth attempts suicide and doesn't succeed, they bring the youth into the little hospital, and, and this happens across the north. It happens in nursing stations. They put them in a little room, for patients, and they put a guard in front of the door so that so the person can't get in and out of the room because 
the youth will leave as soon as somebody's not watching because they don't want to be there to begin with. Uh, and this happens for about three days until the person calms down. There's no like exchange of counseling, nothing. They're just waiting for the person to basically calm down. And when the person calms down, they send them back home. So what happens? Eventually, it happens. That's the kind of service that we provide for our people. And that's why I get so emotional and passionate about it, because something needs to be done. And it's so, uh, and the, the reason I tie it to education is because par part of the problem is in getting those kids to school is that they, they probably don't want to get up in the morning uh, their parents may be in that kind of a situation, and I'm not trying to, you know, put down any of my people. That's the, that's the reality of something we live with. So therefore, the attendance rate starts to be affected by this thing that's going on in the community. So what I'm trying to promote is, you know, get an education Let's get mental health services set up in our communities, even if it's a traveling service. Uh, Cisco has set up the one in the hospital in Iqaluit, and I think that's going to help a lot. Um, but we also need um, to have um, better training, better training for our people for, 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 to provide that service, you know, because it has to be local people. Well, there, there is no doubt that uh, something needs to be done. Like we know, any family or any country is always uh, judged its character and its strength by its weakest links. Mm -hmm. And when we find those, it's all in our national interest to make sure that we can strengthen mm -hmm. them. So thank you very much, Mary. And on that note, I would like to also introduce uh, Willa Black of Cisco and board member of the Canadian Club to formally thank uh, uh, Mary Simon. Thank, thank you very much. I Here I left. am. Here I am. And what a great <laughs> treat it was to to hear you, Mary, and to have you here today. Um, so good afternoon, Unisakut. Um, my name is Willa Black, and I am a proud uh, director of the Canadian Club of, of Toronto. And um, I just want to say, just coming off that comment, Mary, I have been up to the north many times now. I've had the great privilege of uh, working in Axgarnit Middle School, which is our pilot school for our Connected North program in Iqaluit. And um, we've seen the lineup of kids outside the vice principal's door waiting to get their meds. And when you go to the vice principal and say, John, what are you doing? Why are you handing out all these meds? And he tells you, therefore, all the kids that are suffering from fetal alcohol or, or some form of, of um, uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, and then you say, well, who do you work with you know, on the mental health side? And he looks at you like you have nine heads and says, there's nobody here. There's nobody here that we work with. We're totally on our own. And two points about that. These teachers in these communities are extraordinary heroes. And, and I think they're unsung heroes in this country. Um, and the other point is, they are. That's good to see, because they are. And the other point I will make, too, is that I think this is our national shame, that, that we do not have these kinds of services up there. And it's just so wonderful that Mary is, is such a, a passionate and powerful advocate, because this is incredibly important work, and, and we need to draw more attention to it. So. Uh, Mary re referred earlier to the fact that uh, we, we met each other several years ago um, in Edmonton, and at that time, the Makiaka National, National Center for Inuit Education was being launched. And listening to Mary then, as, as I find I, I always react when I hear Mary, um, I was moved by the simplicity, the clarity, and the power of her message and by her call to action in support of the thousands of Inuit children and their families across the North. And that meeting, is, as Mary said, um, launched this fabulous collaboration between Cisco and Inuit Teparit Kinatami to establish a broadband network that will connect all schools across the North to each other and to schools in the South, and that will drive uh, mental health and other health services uh, into some of the remote communities there. So I'm delighted to say that after our pilot school experience, we're now in 10 schools across the North, so we only have 
590 more Aboriginal schools to go, so, but hopefully we'll get there. But Mary was such an incredible champion for this project, um, and it, it is not easy um, introducing yourself into uh, Inuit or any Aboriginal community. You, you need to build that trust, and thanks to, to people like Peter and to Mary, um, we had fantastic introductions and, and great support, and Peter is my, my Sherpa across the Arctic. But if we needed Mary to, to speak in an event, she spoke. If we needed her, um, uh, to attend a meeting, she came, and in doing so, she brought her wisdom and, and her conviction and, and inspired us to do more. And I think, too, you know, in this world of, of uh, content bombardment and digital overload at the end of the day, I think we just all want to be inspired. And it is people like Mary who truly do inspire, I think. Um, people with purpose and a will to drive lasting positive change. So on behalf of the Canadian Club, um, please accept our sincerest thanks. Kuyanamik, uh, uh, your powerful message of reconciliation through education provides hope for the Inuit of Canada and for all of us. Um, your message also helps us to come to terms with the challenges that have affected the Indigenous peoples of the circumpolar region for generations. As a result of your ongoing leadership, Mary, on Canadian Arctic issues such as education and, and jobs and mental health, we've seen positive economic developments emerge. And as you pointed out, we need to learn from the mistakes of the past so that true healing and progress can happen. With your passion, your expertise, your leadership that we've all seen today, we're hopeful that Canada's Inuit will continue to benefit and to move forward. We also, we hope also that for those of us in the South, um, our greater understanding and knowledge of the rich traditions and culture of the Inuit people will inform us all as Canadians. So we wish you great success on your journey. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for these great remarks. And I'd like to thank again our speaker for her remarks and for uh, taking the time to answer questions. And uh, I'd like to thank Willa for those wonderful words, which I think we can all agree upon. And thank you again for joining us. And before I, draw, uh, before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey on each of your tables. If you could please take the time to fill that out, that would be wonderful feedback for our club. And the Canadian Club is always looking ways to, for ways to improve our service and the experience, and this is one very helpful uh, tool that we have. So thank you again, and we appreciate your feedback. This does conclude our program for today. And again, please visit our website, the Canadian Club website, to download a webcast or a podcast of today's event and to learn more about the Canadian Club's uh, upcoming events. Thank you again for joining us, and this meeting is now adjourned. Have a great weekend, everyone.